from the islands of the Pacific to the highlands of South America. I've seen boys working to turn dreams into reality. In fact, I've seen it so often that it merges into one image, one picture. It's of a small boy, maybe nine or ten, in shorts, barefoot, and with a torn shirt. He's on a patch of dirt, alone, and he's looking down at a white and black checkered ball. He takes a step toward it, his leg swings through, and the ball shoots off about seven feet above the ground, where it might zip past a goalie into the net. Except there's no goalie and there's no net. There's just the boy and the ball. And then he runs to the ball, puts it in place with his foot and kicks it. And he does it over and over again. You don't know where he lives, but you know he'll take that ball home with him. And that more than likely he keeps it near the place he sleeps. He sees it when he gets up and when he goes to bed. He may even dream about that ball shooting toward the goal. You know that because you've done something like that yourself. It may have been a basketball. I can remember looking down at the ball in my hands on one freezing winter day and seeing my bloody fingerprints on the pebbly brown surface. I'd been out so long that the cold had cracked the skin on my fingertips, but my mind and my eye were on the orange rim. I can still remember it, including the chipped paint on the front edge of the rim where you'd lock your eye and know the ball would fall just past that spot into the dirt-stained net. And I can still remember the mark on the driveway I'd dribbled to and know I was at the top of the key. I'd spin and jump for that last second shot with a score tied, and I'd do it again and again, sometimes for hours, feeling neither time nor the cold. You may have learned endurance playing a trumpet or throwing a football or riding a bucking horse or drawing a picture, but you learned what we all did. Effort only now and then didn't take you far. The dreams that turned into reality stuck with you nearly all the time, and you worked at them, either in fact or in your thoughts, every day and almost every hour. It shouldn't surprise us, then, that the Lord has said to you and to me, Watch over the church always and be with and strengthen them. God loves us, and he intends for us to become like him. He doesn't ask us now to worry about all his children in all the world, as he does. Instead, he begins with a call to watch over just a few families, a few people. But he knows that a visit... 30 minutes every month with the same lesson for every family would never produce the progress he wants for us. And so he commands, watch over them always and be with and strengthen them. You can't be with them 24 hours a day. That would be always, wouldn't it? But they can be in your heart always. If you'll think about the families you visit, those of you who are blessed to be called home teachers, you know the help they need is beyond your casual effort. In my experience, I've been assigned to watch over people who struggle with divorce, with financial ruin, with children who would not respond to all parents had done, or with disease that would not respond to all that faith and medicine could do. 
and I've gone to a home where little twin girls were sent to the screen door to tell us that mommy and daddy were sleeping and couldn't we come another time? I knew in my heart that effort now and then wasn't enough, that going out home teaching or even giving a good lesson wouldn't do it. God called us to watch over and help people in all their struggles for physical and spiritual well-being. He called us to help by the Spirit. He called us to teach by the Spirit. He called us to live what we teach. He called us to bear testimony. He called us to love them. Now, he didn't make it that hard to test you. He gave you so high a calling because he loves you. He wants you home again. And to get there, you have to become like him. So he gives you a call that can only be done with persistence and endurance. Let's talk tonight as if you and I were companions. I know we may not have gotten together often to prepare, but let's do it tonight. Let's imagine you and I are at my house. You've come over for a few minutes and we're sitting at my kitchen table. We won't talk about home teaching visits or lessons first. We'll talk about our home teaching families for a while. We'll find that some of them are struggling, and that will humble us, knowing the Lord is counting on us. We might talk about what we know the bishop and the Relief Society and some neighbors are doing to help. And we might talk about some things we have done and could do. Then we'll get around to talking about one family and what we might teach them. I'll push the April Ensign across the table to you, open to the first presidency message from President Benson. You look down and see the title, Seek the Spirit of the Lord. That looks like the perfect lesson, doesn't it? There's only the mom and dad at home. They worry about her health problems, wondering if they're doing all they can and should. On top of that, they probably aren't sleeping much because of their son. He's still in the same town, but he's living with his friends. He won't be there when we call, but he'll be in their minds. And what he's doing and not doing will be tearing at their hearts. They'll be wondering what they can do for him. If people ever wanted and needed the Spirit of the Lord, these folks do. Let's agree that we'll both prepare the lesson. But I think they have such respect for you that you ought to take the lead. We can't do them any good unless the Holy Ghost is with us, so I guess we'd better do more than prepare the lesson. We'd better prepare ourselves. First, the Holy Ghost can't be with us unless we're clean. I admire the way you try to watch what you say and do, even what you think. I guess when the Lord tells us to watch over the church, that means watching over ourselves, too. Let's read this quotation from President George Q. Cannon I keep handy, and let's agree we'll try to follow it. Some people have an idea that because they have entered the waters of baptism and repented of their sins, then that is an end of it. What a mistake. We need to have this spirit of repentance continually. We need to pray to God to show us our conduct every day, every night before we review, before we retire to rest. We should review the thoughts, words, and acts of the day, and then repent of everything we have done that is wrong or that has grieved the Holy Spirit. 
live this way every day, and endeavor to progress every day. Second, let's pray both for forgiveness and to get answers about what to do for the family. It would help if when we go to tell them that the Holy Ghost can guide them, it has already guided us to do something for them. If we pray and then feel that prompting and act on it, what we do may be more important than anything we say. Maybe our finding out how to help them will lead them to find out what more they can do for their son. Let's agree we'll include both the parents and their children in our personal prayers, and we'll plead for the Holy Ghost to help us teach. You remember the promise. And the Spirit shall be given unto you by the prayer of faith. And if you receive not the Spirit, ye shall not teach. That really fits us, doesn't it? Third, we're going to be teaching a gospel principle. So we'd better study and ponder the scriptures. You remember the Lord said, Teach the principles of my gospel, which are in the Bible and the Book of Mormon, in which is the fullness of the gospel. I know you've been reading the Book of Mormon regularly. So have I. Why don't we think about our family and the gifts of the Spirit while we read? If we do, I'm sure that we'll understand and feel some things that are new to us and will teach and bear testimony in their home with more power. It won't hurt to bear testimony from our own experience that we felt the Spirit while we read the Scriptures. Then they may try reading and pondering. And if they do, they'll get the prompting of the Holy Ghost for themselves. And that will help them more than just feeling it when we're there. Well, then we'll have a prayer together before you leave. In the next day or two, we may stop by the house to do something for the family before we get there for a lesson. The night we teach them, things will seem about as they have before, with a few exceptions. An idea and a scripture will come into your mind as you teach. You'll bear testimony of the Savior with more feeling. Perhaps we'll both find our hearts drawn out to the people more. And they may linger at the door a little longer than usual as we go. Maybe only some of that will happen. But that won't discourage us. We thought it would take repeated, steady effort. The desire of our hearts is to help others taste the fruit of the gospel. And we know it won't come quickly or easily after a single effort for them or for us. But in that visit, or one that will come later, you will feel a warmth in your heart and truth come into your mind. And that will bring you joy. It may go away, but you will remember it. Then you will be able to imagine what it would be like to have the Holy Ghost for your constant companion in this life and to feel the love and approval of the Savior and your Father in heaven for eternity. Alma knew what having that desire in our hearts and visualizing it with faith would mean to us. It would keep us going when the going was hard. Here's what he said. And thus, if ye will not nourish the word looking forward with an eye of faith to the fruit thereof, 
Ye can never pluck of the fruit of the tree of life, but if ye will nourish the word, yea, nourish the tree as it beginneth to grow, by your faith with great diligence and with patience, looking forward to the fruit thereof, it shall take root, and behold, it shall be a tree springing up unto everlasting life. By the power of the Holy Ghost and with the eye of faith, we have glimpsed and we can look forward to the fruit of the gospel. That is the desire of our hearts. And wanting it will give us the power to keep going with great diligence and patience. The little boy in my memory keeps kicking that ball over and over again. I can't see a goalpost or a goalie. I can't hear the roar of the crowd. But in his mind, he can. And so he kicks the ball over and over again. I pray that we will take the great opportunity God has given us to prepare ourselves. He has trusted us as watchmen of the souls of his children. He's given us a way to look forward to the fruit of the gospel and a call that requires our whole hearts. As the boy's dreams of kicking the winning goal draw him back to persistent practice with that ball, so our vision of the fruits of the gospel will draw us back to persistent repentance and prayer and study and service. I pray that the Lord may say of us, as Alma said of his son Shiblon, and now my son, I trust that I shall have great joy in you because of your steadiness and your faithfulness unto God. For as you have commenced in your youth to look to the Lord your God, even so I hope that you will continue in keeping his commandments, for blessed is he that endureth to the end. I bear testimony that in time and eternity God will bless our steadiness as we invite his children to come unto Christ. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. My dear brethren of the Aaronic and Melchizedek priesthood, how happy I am to be with you this evening. I rejoice in the messages of my brethren who have preceded me, and I now ask you for your faith and prayers in my behalf as I address you. For some time, I have wanted to speak directly to the great body of single adults, brethren of the Church. Many of you have served full-time missions. Many of you are giving outstanding service in your wards and stakes. To you, single adult brethren, I want you to know of my great love for each of you. I have great expectations for you and a great hope 
in you. You have so much to contribute to the Lord and to the kingdom of God now and in the future. You may be 27 years of age or 30 or possibly even older. Just what are your priorities at this time in your life? May I suggest for your careful consideration the counsel we give to returning missionaries. This counsel applies just as much to those who have been home for a while as to those who have been, who may not have been, full-time missions for the church. Here are some of the priorities we pray you will single, you as single adults will consider as essential to your life. First, continue to draw close to the Savior through sincere, heartfelt prayer. Remember always the effect, the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Feast upon the words of Christ by consistently studying the scriptures every day and by following the counsel of the living prophets. Participate, particularly make the study of the Book of Mormon a lifetime pursuit and sup from its pages. Be an example in your church activity. Honor the Sabbath day. Attend your meetings. Observe the word of wisdom. Pay your tithes and offerings. Support your leaders. And otherwise, keep the commandments. Serve cheerfully and gratefully in every calling you receive. Life live worthy of a temple recommend and enjoy the sweet, sacred spirit that comes from temple attendance. Dress and groom yourself in a way that reflects your lifelong commitment to share the gospel with others. Be thoughtful, loving, helpful, and appreciative of your family as you seek to deepen those eternal relationships. In your dating and courting, fully maintain the standards of the church. Be morally clean. Let virtue garnish your thoughts unceasingly. Remember the counsel of Elder Bruce R. McConkie that the most important single thing that any Latter-day Saint ever does in this world is to marry the right person 
in the right place and by the right authority. Understand that temple marriage is essential to your salvation and exaltation. Carefully select practical and worthwhile goals and in an organized way work to reach them. Apply yourself prayerfully and diligently to selecting and per pursuing academic and vocational goals. Share the gospel and your testimony with those who are not members of the church, who are less active. Improve your community by active participation and service, remembering your civic responsibilities that all it takes for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing. Do something meaningful in defense of your God-given freedom and liberty. Remember that your entire life is a mission and that each new phase of it can be richly rewarding as you magnify your talents and take advantage of your opportunities. May I now say an additional word about an eternal opportunity and responsibility which I have referred earlier and which is of the greatest importance to you. I am referring to celestial marriage. Just a few weeks ago, I received a letter from two devoted parents, part of which reads as follows. Dear President Benson, we are concerned about what seems to be a growing problem, at least in this part of the church familiar to us. That is, so many young men in the church over the age of 30 who are still unmarried. We have sons 30, 31, and 32, 33 in this situation. Many of our friends also are experiencing this same concern for unmarried sons and daughters. Their letter continues, In our experience, these are unusual young men who have been on missions, are well-educated, and are living the commandments, except this most important one. There does not appear to be a lack of choice young ladies in the same age bracket who could make suitable companions. It is frustrating to us as their parents 
who sometimes feel we have failed in our parental teaching and guiding responsibilities. My single adult brethren, we are concerned. We want you to know that the position of this Church has never changed regarding the importance of celestial marriage. It is a commandment of God. The Lord's declaration in Genesis is still true. And the Lord said, It is not good that man should be alone. To obtain a fullness of glory and exaltation in the celestial kingdom, one must enter into this holiest of ordinances. Without marriage, the purposes of the Lord would be frustrated. Choice spirits would be withheld from the experience of mortality, and postponing marriage unduly often means limiting your posterity and the time will come, brethren, when you will feel and know that loss. I can assure you that the greatest responsibility and the greatest joys in life are centered in the family, honorable marriage, and rearing a righteous posterity. And the older you become, the less likely you are to marry, and then you may lose these eternal blessings altogether. President Spencer W. Kimball recounted an experience he once had. Quote, Recently I met a young returned missionary who is 35 years of age. He had been home from his mission for 14 years, and yet he was a little concerned about his bachelor, bachelorhood and laughed about it. I shall feel sorry for this young man when the day comes that he faces the great judge on the throne and when the Lord asks this boy, where is your wife? All of his excuses which he gave to his fellows on earth will seem very light and senseless when he answers the judge, I was very busy, or I felt I should get my education first, or I did not find the right girl. Such answers will be hollow and of little avail. We know 
he was commanded to find a wife and to marry her and make her happy. He knew it was his duty to become the father of children and provide a rich, full life for them as they grew up. He knew all this, yet he postponed his responsibility." I realize that some of you, brethren, may have genuine fears regarding the real responsibilities that will be yours if you do marry. You are concerned about being able to support a wife and family and provide with the necessities in these uncertain economic times. Those fears must be replaced with faith. I assure you, brethren, that if you will be industrious, faithful, pay your tithes and offerings, and conscientiously keep the commandments of the Lord, the Lord will sustain you. Yes, there will be sacrifices required, but you will grow from these and will be a better man for having met them. Work hard educationally and in your vacation, but put your trust in the Lord. Have faith, and it will work out. The Lord never gives a commandment without providing the means to accomplish it. Also, do not be caught up in materialism, one of the real plagues of our generation. That is acquiring things, fast-paced living, and secure career success in the single state. Honorable marriage is more important than wealth, position, and status. As husband and wife, you can achieve your life's goals together. As you sacrifice for each other and your children, the Lord will bless you and your commitment to the Lord and your service in his kingdom will be enhanced. Now, brethren, do not expect perfection in your choice of a mate. Do not be so particular that you overlook her most important qualities of having a strong testimony living the principles of the gospel, loving home, wanting to be a mother in Zion, and supporting you in your priesthood responsibilities. Of course, she should be attractive to you. 
But do not just date one girl after another for the sole pleasure of dating without seeking the Lord's confirmation in your choice of an eternal companions. And one good yardstick as to whether or not the person might be the right one for you is in her presence. Do you think your noblest thoughts? Do you aspire to your finest deeds? Do you wish you were better than you are? God bless you, single adult brethren of the church. May your priorities be right. I have suggested some very important priorities this evening. May you seriously consider and ponder them. Know, my good brethren, that I have spoken from my heart and by his spirit because of my love and concern for you. It is what the Lord would have you here today. With all my heart, I echo the words of the prophet Lehi from the Book of Mormon. Arise from the dust, my sons, and be men. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. If there is a brother, Ronald Reed, Ronald Reed from Canyon, Texas, in the tabernacle, will you please go to door six? An emergency has occurred which concerns you and you are needed. <clears throat> There are thousands of boys here in the tabernacle tonight, and I think I would like to talk to you. Some of you are 12 years of age. When I was 12, two things of great significance occurred in my life. I became a Boy Scout. We did not have the Cub Scout program then, and a boy had to be 12 to be a scout. This was 1922, only nine years after the Church adopted the Scout program. I lived in a very large ward by today's standards. There were more than 1,100 people in that ward. We had a large troop, and we met in the cultural hall of the old First Ward. We made a lot of noise. The floors were of hard wood, the walls were hard and smooth, and the sound bounced around them. Our scoutmaster had a whistle, which he blew frequently to get order. I filled out an application and paid the 50-cent registration fee, which seemed like a lot of money at the time. I learned the scout motto, Be Prepared. I learned the scout slogan, Do a Good Turn Daily. I learned the scout oath. On my honor, I will do my best to do my duty to God and my country and to obey the scout law to help other people at all times, to keep myself physically strong, 
mentally awake and morally straight. I learned the scout law just as President Monson did. Scout is trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, reverent. We said it just about that fast. And when we recited the law, one of the boys always added, a scout is hungry. I think it was literally true. He came from a very large family, and getting enough to eat was always a challenge. When I was 12, I also became a deacon in the Aaronic priesthood. My name was presented to the entire congregation of our ward. Everyone was asked to vote for me if they felt me worthy of the office. All hands in the large congregation went up. I was honored to think that all of the members of my ward raised their hands in my behalf. Then two men, good and true and faithful, one of them my father, placed their hands upon my head and conferred upon me the Aaronic priesthood and ordained me to the office of deacon. I did not have any oath, slogan, motto, or law to memorize in connection with this. But I did memorize Section 13 of the Doctrine and Covenants, and I have remembered it ever since. These are the words of an angel. They are the words of John the Baptist when he conferred the Aaronic Priesthood upon Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery on May 15, 1829. Upon you, my fellow servants, in the name of Messiah, I confer the Priesthood of Aaron which holds the keys of the ministering of angels and of the gospel of repentance and of baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. And this shall never be taken again from the earth until the sons of Levi do offer again an offering unto the Lord in righteousness. Unlike scouting, we did not have one large deacon's quorum that met in the cultural hall. Rather, we were divided into four quorums with up to twelve boys in each. I thought it was a good arrangement because there were fewer of us in a group with less noise and a more intimate relationship between us and our priesthood leader. I later learned that this number had been wisely designated by the Lord in Revelation. He said, and again, verily I say unto you, the duty of a president over the office of a deacon is to preside over twelve deacons, to sit in council with them, and to teach them their duty, edifying one another. Now, I am not in any way disparaging scouting. It is a wonderful program. It is the Church's activity for program, program for boys in many areas of the world. But I feel that the most important program for boys in the Church is that of the Aaronic Priesthood. Scouting is an excellent and wonderful program that has come of the wisdom of men. The Aaronic Priesthood is a gift from God. Now, as a boy, I knew from what I had learned in Sunday school that John the Baptist had been killed by a wicked ruler, that he had been beheaded to satisfy the lustful desire of an evil woman. And in 1829, it was this same John who had come and given the priesthood to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery. 
He spoke to them. He placed his hands upon their heads. They heard his voice and they felt his hands. This meant that he had to have been resurrected. That was a wonderful thing and a very impressive thing to me. Here was living evidence of the reality of the resurrection, which had come through the divine power of the Lord Jesus Christ, the same who earlier had been baptized by John in the River Jordan. John told Joseph and Oliver that he was acting under the direction of Peter, James, and John, the apostles who had been ordained by the Lord and who held what we call the Melchizedek, or the higher priesthood, as distinguished from the Aaronic or the lesser priesthood. Joseph Smith was then twenty-three and a half years of age. Oliver Cowdery was about the same. They were young men, and I thought when I was ordained a deacon, what a wonderful thing it was that John the Baptist, who was a great man in the New Testament and who lived nearly two thousand years earlier, had now come as a resurrected being, and that he should address Joseph and Oliver as my fellow servants. Even though he came as a servant of God and acted under the direction of Peter, James, and John, he did not place himself above Joseph and Oliver. He put them on his same level when he addressed them as my fellow servants. If they were his fellow servants, then perhaps I, as a twelve-year-old boy, could also be his fellow servant. He spoke in the name of Messiah, or as we would say it, in the name of Jesus Christ. He set the pattern, and since then, the ordinances which we performed are administered in the name of Jesus Christ. This is something we should never forget and never overlook, for in the exercise of our priesthood we are acting in behalf of God our Eternal Father and Jesus Christ the Son. In the authority that was John's he conferred the priesthood of Aaron. Why did he use that expression? Who was Aaron? Aaron was the brother of Moses. He was three years older than Moses. When the Lord called Moses as the leader of the children of Israel while they were in Egypt, Moses protested that he had a stammering tongue and that he was not capable of leadership. The Lord did not accept his excuse, but rather he told Moses that he should be the leader and that his brother Aaron should be his voice. Moses and Aaron went together to ask Pharaoh to let the children of Israel leave Egypt. Pharaoh was angry each time they went. Aaron had a rod, and when he dropped it on the floor before the ruler, it became a serpent. When the children of Israel eventually fled Egypt under Moses' leadership, Aaron was his assistant. He was of the tribe of Levi and was given the holy priesthood with the promise that certain elements of that priesthood should be given to and be exercised by those of his tribe through all of the generations to come. This priesthood, or this lesser portion of the higher priesthood, 
came to be known as the Aaronic or Levitical priesthood. Aaron lived to the good age of 123, and his authority was passed to his son to be passed down through those generations who would be worthy of it. Now, what are the elements of this priesthood which were restored to the earth by John, John the Baptist? He said that this priesthood of Aaron holds the keys of the ministering of angels. It is a tremendous thing to have the right to the ministering of angels. When President Wilfred Woodruff was an elderly man, he said to the young men of the Church, I desire to impress upon you the fact that it does not make any difference whether a man is a priest or an apostle if he magnifies his calling. A priest holds the keys of the ministering of angels, said President Woodruff. Never in my life as an apostle, as a seventy, or as an elder have I had more of the protection of the Lord than while holding the office of a priest. The Lord revealed to me by visions, by revelations, and by the Holy Spirit many things that lay before me. On Sunday, February 28, 1897, 89 years ago, a great meeting was held here in this Salt Lake Tabernacle. It was to honor President Woodruff on his 90th birthday. The tabernacle was beautifully decorated. There was appropriate music with talks of tribute. Then President Woodruff, old and somewhat crippled, stood to speak, and he said to the young man, I have passed through the periods of boyhood, early manhood, and old age. I cannot expect to tarry a great while longer with you, but I want to give you a few words of counsel. You occupy a position in the Church and Kingdom of God and have received the power of the Holy Priesthood. The God of heaven has appointed you and called you forth in this day and generation. I want you to look at this. Young men, listen to the counsel of your brethren. Live near to God. Pray while young. Learn to pray. Learn to cultivate the Holy Spirit of God. Link it to you, and it will become a spirit of revelation unto you inasmuch as you nourish it. President Woodruff had an inspired view of this remarkable and wonderful blessing which may be enjoyed by every boy who holds the Aaronic priesthood and lives worthy of it. That key is the gift of the ministering of angels. I am convinced the Lord would not have given it to us had He not desired that we have it so that we might enjoy the wonderful gifts, guidance, and protection which come therefrom. John the Baptist went on to say to Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery that this priesthood which he bestowed upon them included the keys of the gospel of repentance. What a marvelous and wonderful thing this is. It is our privilege, you and mine, as those who hold this priesthood, to repent of evil, with the expectation that we will be forgiven if we live worthy of the forgiveness of the Lord. 
Furthermore, it is our privilege to preach repentance, as the Lord has made clear in Section 20 of the Doctrine and Covenants. He there sets forth the duties of deacons, teachers, and priests. It is their responsibility to watch over the Church and see that there is no iniquity and to invite all to come unto Christ. That involves repentance from sin and obedience to the principles and laws of the gospel. This ironic priesthood bestowed by John the Baptist also includes the keys of baptism by immersion for the remission of sins. It is one thing to repent. It is another to have our sins remitted or forgiven. The power to bring this about is found in the Aaronic priesthood. Baptism is the primary ordinance of the gospel. It is the gate through which all come into the Church. It is so important that it is performed not only for the living but also for the dead, because those who are beyond the veil of death cannot move forward on the way to immortality and eternal life without this ordinance having been administered in their behalf. I want to emphasize, boys, that the holding of the Aaronic priesthood and the exercise of its power is not a small or unimportant thing. The bestowal of these keys in this dispensation was one of the greatest and most significant things incident to the entire Restoration. It was the first bestowal of divine authority. In this, the dispensation of the fullness of times. It is the priesthood of God with authority to act in the name of the Savior of mankind. It is the authority under which the emblems of the Lord's Supper are administered to the membership of the Church. That great and important sacrament was instituted by the Savior himself shortly before his crucifixion. It was he who first gave to those he loved the emblems of his flesh and blood and commanded that all should partake of them in remembrance of him and as a token of a covenant between God and man. When you priests of the Aaronic priesthood administer the sacrament, you are doing what Jesus did while he was yet in the flesh and which he also did when he ministered among the Nephites following his resurrection. When you as a priest kneel at the sacrament table and offer up the prayer which came by revelation, you place the entire congregation under covenant with the Lord. Is this a small thing? It is a most important and remarkable thing. Now, my dear young brethren, if we are to enjoy the ministering of angels, if we are to teach the gospel of repentance, if we are to baptize by immersion for the remission of sins, if we are to administer to the membership of the Church the emblems of the sacrifice of our Lord, then we must be worthy to do so. You cannot consistently so serve on the Sabbath and fail to live the standards of the Church during the week. 
It is totally wrong for you to take the name of the Lord in vain and indulge in filthy and unseemly talk at school or at work and then kneel at the sacrament table on Sunday. You cannot drink beer or partake of illegal drugs and be worthy of the ministering of angels. You cannot be immoral in talk or in practice and expect the Lord to honor your service in teaching repentance or baptizing for the remission of sins. As those holding his holy priesthood, you must be worthy fellow servants. I would not wish to leave the impression that these abhorrent practices are common among the young men of the Church, but I know that they are not entirely absent. Most of you are trying to do the right thing, and I compliment you most warmly. But if there be any here who are not doing the right thing, then I plead with you, and I invoke upon you the spirit of repentance, the keys of which you, the keys of which you hold as those endowed with the Aaronic priesthood. Make yourselves worthy in every respect, and the Lord will bless you. You will have peace in your hearts and a greater sense of the remarkable power which has been given to you under this greatest of all programs for young men. This program which has come from the Lord Himself for the blessing of young men and those to whom they minister. I bear my witness and testimony of these things as I invoke the blessings of the Lord upon you, his servants, who have been endowed with his power. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. amen. He who has just spoken to us is Bishop Henry B. Irene. First Counselor in the Presiding Bishopric. President Benson has suggested that I next speak to you. King David, in one of his beautiful and moving psalms, declared, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is thy name in all the earth! When I consider thy heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon and the stars thou hast ordained. What is man that thou art mindful of him? And that venerable man of wisdom, even Job, added, What is man that thou shouldest magnify him, and that thou shouldest place thy heart upon him? We need not grope for the answers to these questions, my dear brethren. All one has to do is stand behind this microphone in this pulpit and gaze into your faces and recognize the faces of those in the many buildings throughout the world where the priesthood broadcast is being transmitted, and one comes to a conclusion that you are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. You are an holy nation. Ye are a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. As bearers of the priesthood, brethren, we have been placed on earth in troubled times. Political machinations destroy the stability of nations, and despots grasp for power. And some areas, unfortunately, seem forever downtrodden 
deprived of opportunity, and left with a feeling of failure. We who hold the priesthood of God can make a difference, brethren. When we are blessed with the Spirit of the Lord, we can build boys, we can mend men, we can accomplish miracles in His holy service. Our opportunities are without limit. We can take comfort from that great quotation that the greatest force in the world today is the power of God as it works through man. If we are on the Lord's errand, we are entitled to the Lord's help. That divine help, however, is predicated upon our worthiness. To sail safely the seas of mortality, we need the inspiration and guiding influence of that wise mariner, even the great Jehovah. We reach out, we reach up for heavenly help. Are our reaching hands clean? Are our yearning hearts pure? A great lesson is learned from the pages of history, a lesson on worthiness from the words of the dying King Darius, king of all Persia and even of Egypt. His rival, Alexander the Great, had been declared legitimate son of Ammon. He too was Pharaoh. Alexander, finding the defeated Darius on the point of death, laid his hands upon his head and attempted to heal him, commanding him to arise and regain his kingly powers. He said, I swear unto thee, Darius, by all the gods, that I do these things truly and without fakery. Darius replied with a gentle rebuke, Alexander, my boy, do you think you can touch heaven with those hands of yours? An inspiring lesson, brethren, is learned from a recent Viewpoint article from the back page of the Church section of the Deseret News. I would like to quote this great lesson to us. To some, it may seem strange to see ships of many nations loading and unloading cargo along the docks at Portland, Oregon. That city is 100 miles from the ocean. Getting there involves a difficult passage, sometimes a turbulent passage, over the bar guiding the entrance to the Columbia River and then the long trip up the Columbia and the Willamette to Portland. But ship captains like to tie up at Portland. They know that as their ships travel the Salton Seas, a curious saltwater shellfish called a barnacle fastens itself to the hull and stays there for the rest of its life, surrounding itself with a rock-like shell. As more and more barnacles attach themselves to the hull of the vessel, they increase the ship's drag, they slow its progress, they decrease its efficiency. Periodically, the ship must go into dry dock, where with great effort the barnacles are chiseled or scraped off. It's a difficult, expensive process that ties the ship up for days. But not if the captain can get his ship to Portland. Barnacles can't live in fresh water. There in the sweet fresh waters of the Willamette or the Columbia, the barnacles loosen and fall away, and the ship returns to its task lightened and renewed. Sins 
are like barnacles. Hardly anyone goes through life without picking up some. They increase our drag. They slow our progress. They decrease our efficiency. My dear brethren, unrepented, barnacles stacked on barnacles, building up one on another, can eventually sink us. In His infinite love and mercy, our Lord has provided a harbor where, through repentance, our barnacles can fall from us and be forgotten. And then, with our souls lightened and renewed, we can go efficiently about our work and His. Close quote. My dear brethren, our Lord and Savior has provided for our guidance in our time models to follow. I call them pioneers. For Webster's definition of a pioneer in one case is one who goes before, showing others the way to follow. With faith as their moving power, these pioneers have sailed upstream against the currents of doubt everywhere to be found. We cannot help but be uplifted by their statements and by the philosophy of their lives. First from Nephi, I will go and do the thing which the Lord hath commanded. Then, of course, from Samuel, to obey is better than to sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. From the Apostle Paul, for I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. From Job, I know that my Redeemer lives and that he shall stand on the earth at the last day. From Joseph, I go as a lamb to the slaughter, but I am calm as a summer morn, for I have a conscience void of offense toward God and all men. You may say these are men of yesteryear, but what about today? Are there men who can make the difference today? When President Spencer W. Kimball was called to preside over the Church, a new surge of activity was everywhere felt. He declared, we must lengthen our stride, and then he stepped forward, and the whole Church followed. When President Ezra Taft Benson was called as the President of the Church, he called to our attention that we had neglected the Book of Mormon. He indicated that we should put greater emphasis on reading the Book of Mormon and living the teachings of the Book of Mormon. And then he invited the entire membership of the Church to follow him in doing so. What has been the result? Why so great has been the demand for more and more copies of the Book of Mormon that new printing presses have been acquired just to keep up with the demand? Every day, every week, at President Benson's office, there happens to be delivered letter upon letter upon letter from those who have read the Book of Mormon. Some are from little children where they sign their names from the bottom corner right up to the top. Others are beautifully engraved, but they all say the same message. Our lives have been improved. Our families united. Our goals have been attained. And souls have been saved. Such is the power, my brethren, of a prophet of God. Let us remember, however, as Elder Perry mentioned in his stirring address, that we live in the world, 
and that there are men not of our faith and women who provide good examples and who have made a difference in their own times. I think of Lord Baden-Powell, for example, the founder of scouting. Who can measure the impact of the scout oath throughout the world? On my honor, I will do my best to do my duty to God and my country and to obey the scout law, to help other people at all times and keep myself physically strong, mentally awake, and morally straight. Incalculable is the value and the result of living the scout law. Trustworthy, loyal, helpful, friendly, courteous, kind, obedient, cheerful, thrifty, brave, clean, and reverent. The influence, brethren, of your personal testimonies is ever so far-reaching. The Lord instructed, the testimony which ye have borne is recorded in heaven for the angels to look upon, and they rejoice over you, and your sins are forgiven you. Do you remember, President Hinckley, when you and Brother McConkie and I served on the Missionary Executive Committee with then Elder Spencer W. Kimball? He used to read that scripture to us and then say, I want to bear my testimony every day that my sins might be forgiven me. And then with a wink in his eye, he would say, it might not be a bad idea for you three either. And Brother Hinckley and Brother McConkie and I would follow suit and bear our testimonies. The Lord also said, with some I am not well pleased, for they will not open their mouths because of the fear of men. Brethren, we never know when our opportunity is going to come to give an answer to every man that asketh us, a reason for the hope that is within us, to comply with that instruction of the Apostle Peter. An opportunity came to me many years ago before I was a general authority. I had been speaking at a business convention in Dallas, Texas, which is known as the City of Churches. At the conclusion of the convention and my remarks, I thought I would take a leisurely tourist ride about the city. The name of the tour was Sea Dallas, City of Churches. I boarded the bus with about 39 other passengers, made myself comfortable, and just sat back to enjoy a pleasant hour. The driver began his narration as he drove the bus forward. I can hear his words as though it were yesterday. On the left is the beautiful chapel where the Methodists meet. I looked at the building and it was beautiful. On the right, he said, is the cathedral where the Catholics worship. It too was beautiful. But then my ears perked up when he said, and in the red brick building on the hill is where the Mormons meet. Now I was really proud. And then a lady's voice from the rear of the bus could be heard saying, Driver, tell me more about the Mormons. The driver moved the bus over to the side of the road, turned off the ignition, spun around in his seat, and then asked, Who asked that question? And a meek little lady raised her hand and said, I did. He said, Lady, all I know about the Mormons is they meet in that red brick building in the hill to the left. 
Is there anyone on this bus who knows anything more about the Mormons? I gazed at the expression on each passenger's face, searching for some sign of recognition, some glimmer of an answer. But in every case, the head was being nodded in the opposite direction, I hoped. And then I came to an appreciation of the old adage, when the time for decision arrives, the time for preparation is past. And for the next 15 minutes, I gave an accounting of the reason of the hope that was within me. And I felt good inside. Brethren, oft-times the bearing of our testimonies doesn't result in a seed that immediately takes root and flowers that bloom. On the contrary, there are those occasions where our testimonies are like bread cast upon the water that returns only after many days. I think it was one year ago, after this very priesthood meeting, when I returned home, I heard my telephone ringing. And as I picked up the receiver, a man introduced himself as Leonardo Gambardella from California. And then he posed to me this question. He said, President Monson, this is Leonardo Gambardella. I am the most newly baptized member of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I need your help. Did you, by chance, have a relative named Elder Monson serving in the New England Mission 13 years ago? I said, no, I don't recall. He said it was an Elder Monson and an Elder Bonner that bore their testimonies to me when I lived in New England, and their testimonies touched my heart but I didn't follow through with those feelings. And I moved to California. And now, after 13 long years, those testimonies still burned within me, and I found the other missionaries and have become a member. I'd like to contact Elder Monson and Elder Bonner. I told him I would do my best. With the help of the missionary department and the membership department, I located the name and the address and the phone number of an Elder Monson and an Elder Bonner who served in the New England Mission 13 years ago. My conversation with Elder Bonner was rather routine, but when I called Elder Monson, I said, This is President Monson calling from the Church Administration Building. He answered, You gotta be kidding. <laughs> I told him I wasn't kidding and explained to him the conversation which I had had with Brother Gambardella. There was a long pause. He said, I remember the man. I'm sure Elder Bonner will remember the man. And then I suggested that the two of them get on the telephone and extend a word of congratulations to that newly baptized member, Elder, or rather, Leonardo Gambardella. The worth of souls is, the great, in, is great in the sight of God. Brethren, we can make a difference. Whom the Lord calls, the Lord qualifies. This promise extends not only to missionaries, but to home teachers, to priesthood teachers, to bishoprics, to high counselors, to quorum officers. When we qualify ourselves by our worthiness, when we strive with faith nothing wavering to fulfill the duties appointed to us, when we seek the inspiration of Almighty God, we can achieve the miraculous. 
I love the thought behind the hymn, Improve the Shining Moments. Time flies on wings of lightning. We cannot call it back. It comes then presses forward along its onward track. And if we are not mindful, the chance will fade away. For life is quick in passing, tis as a single day. As we leave the general priesthood meeting this night, let us determine, brethren, to shed any barnacles of sin, to prepare for our time of opportunity, and to honor the priesthood we bear through the service we render, the lives that we touch, and the souls that we're privileged to help save. For you are a chosen generation. You are a royal priesthood. You are an holy nation. And you, my brethren, can make a difference. To this truth I testify in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. The choir and congregation will now join in singing, We Thank Thee, O God, for a Prophet, following which President Gordon B. Hinckley, First Counselor in the First Presidency, will speak to us.